Hi, this is Paul. Uh, a week or so ago, I caught this video, or at least I watched the first half of it, between Tammy Peterson and Queenie Yu. Now, I caught the thumbnail of it because I had watched this Tammy Peterson rosary testimony, which is quite a moving video. And I, I, I saw her there, and when I saw her there, I, I, I remembered her. So then when I saw her on the, the Queenie U video, and there are a lot of thoughts with that, most of them not going to be connected with what the rest of this video is about. Because Tammy said something right at the beginning about Jordan, which was so Jordan that I thought, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but the point before I get to that point is how so often it's the case people people think oh, these big ideas are making a difference. And often it's it's a personal relationship that really changes someone. So um so this, this, actually, what I what I what I listened to this video it was just kind of a lovely video of, um, you know, a, a mature Christian woman just explaining some of her theological thoughts and some of the wisdom that she had learned at a Christ, as a Christian, sharing it with Tammy, who in many ways this woman is discipling Tammy in Christianity. But I, I want to hit this hit this little part of the video. Day, yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was it was a really nice day. And did we have a talk that day? No, we didn't have a talk that day. Good. So that was also good. How do you feel about coming back to Toronto soon? Um, that's good. I want to see this baby be born. So, yes. Yeah, we're we're happy about it. Good. Yeah, I'm quite surprised that's what's happening, but I'm uh, I'm good. I'm very thankful. You know, you you, you don't. Now, we've been talking a lot about authenticity uh, for the last few days as we have this eruption of uh, people from people making their own videos and having their own video testimonies. And I know that the Rando's conversations have sort of functioned in that way and people are doing it on their own. And and this, I believe the I believe when I watched it, this said that this had been yeah, this had been recorded on April 20, 2022. And you know, it's almost like we're watching a video phone call between these two in terms of just how it's going. And obviously, Tammy or Michaela, Michaela's probably running Tammy's channel. Maybe not. And if I say that, someone who watches it will find it and send me an email. Correct me. No, Tammy's channel is actually blah, blah, blah. It's beside the point. But it's it's a it's a nice... I think part of the power of social media has been to disarm some of what happened in mass media because I think mass media deeply readjusted people's calibration about the normal and and for good and for bad. Social media sort of brought it down and said, yeah, you know, this is how we are without hair or makeup or or what have you, uh, just talking with friends. And I think I think people find that helpful because that's how they that's their experience of life. I don't know what's going to happen if you leave it up to God, do you? It's mm -hmm. always full of surprises. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we know that everything happens for the best and it'll all work out in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I've been saying to Jordan, you know, Jordan sometimes will say to me something and I say, well, you know, you, he did his best or, or she did her best. And he doesn't like to hear that. So the other day I was reading something. 
right there when she said that i thought i completely believe he doesn't like to hear that because everything from jordan right from the start has always been you know clean up your room uh pull that cross up the hill etc etc so um well he, he did his best jordan doesn't like to hear that okay that's what i wanted to get in because a number of people have written to me and said, you should talk about um, Alex O'Connor's conversation with Chris Williamson. What was interesting to me is that nobody contacted me and said, you should talk about, uh, you should talk about Alex O'Connor's conversation with Ben Shapiro on the Unbelievable podcast, which was very interesting given, of course, Ben Shapiro's not a Christian, Alex O'Connor's definitely not a Christian, and there they are on the Unbelievable podcast. I started watching the Alex O'Connor-Ben Shapiro conversation on the Unbelievable podcast, and I quickly lost interest, partly because they went down the free will rabbit hole. And the free will conversation is, I think, I'll talk about it a little bit here, but actually, I sort of agree with Chris and Alex said. It's just kind of a, an unsatisfying conversation. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk about, and I only have time to make one video today, so this is going to be kind of a hodgepodge, is titling. So Alex O'Connor's conversation with Chris Williamson was titled, The Thumbnail Says This is a Real Crisis, Alex O'Connor, and the... Um, the title for the conversation is Are People Becoming Less Moral? Alex O'Connor, 4K. Now, I had just posted today, I, I posted a little video that I made yesterday, and then I posted uh, Thomas uh, Steininger's video from the German Breakwater Festival, and I gave it kind of a long and rambly title. Um, well, what did I title it? It's kind of kind of long and rambly. Um, Thomas Steininger on interbeing, that's his word, dialogos, that of course is John Verveke's word, as next stage of the sacred into the metamodern, I don't want to say postmodern because that isn't going to communicate well, West. And that was what his video was about. And so it's kind of a, kind of a crazy jargon-laden title. And uh, Chris Huber, 9448, wrote, Are we trying to make subjects as obscurely titled as possible to make them inaccessible to anyone outside the, this little corner? I do that sometimes. I really do. I do sometimes title things and thumbnail things so that most people won't watch them. Well, then why on earth post them? Because a lot of it has to do with what we are using YouTube for. So then I, my answer to him was, no, a video like this, few people will watch, especially due to the title and thumbnail. There are also sound issues with a bunch of these talks from the, the German festival, but um, and, and part of it's my fault because I noticed that I couldn't really hear myself coming through. You know, you don't, in a, in, a, in a best of all possible world scenario, you have a feedback speaker so you can actually know if the, the mic is tracking and that mic had very low sensitivity. So if I moved it a little ways from my mouth, it lost me. Anyway, that's part of the problem with a handheld mic. Titles like these are to help me and others actually 
uh, have some idea of what the video is about. Videos are remarkably difficult to title. Some titles elevate one salient point that may come um, um, may come to the video to look at. Look at how Chris Williamson often titles his conversations or Jordan Peterson. There are many, many possible titles um, by others titling in that way. Oh, shoot, I didn't, I should have said read more. So this is a real crisis. Are people becoming less moral? All right. So Tammy Peterson says of Jordan, Tammy says, oh, they tried their best. Shouldn't trying their best count for something? And Jordan's like, no, <laughs> he's Yoda-like. There's, there's no try. There's do or don't do. But a lot of this, again, if you go to the Ben Shapiro video, they wind up going down the, the free will, no free will rabbit hole for a little while. Now, now, part of the problem with that conversation, which actually comes up in both conversations, everybody sort of realizes the difficulty with this debate is, in many ways, it's a meaningless debate, mostly. It's meaningless because, actually, they both kind of say it at one point, but they say it in a rather obscure way. It doesn't really matter what you, whether or not you think free will is real or illusory. Now, personally, I don't like free will. I like real agency um, because free will is way too open. And our, uh, the choices we have on any given menu are quite a bit more constrained by reality. But, but both of them basically say it, it doesn't really matter where people come down on this debate because for the most part, they act, we act like we have it, and to not act like we have it yields the kind of life that nobody respects. And, and that sort of gets back to uh, what Tammy Peterson said about Jordan in terms of he doesn't like to hear they did the best they could. Because one of the things that, actually it was Raj who, in an early estuary meeting here, one of the things that Raj said early on was, I mean, Jordan Peterson just sort of, he said will, but it was really agency. Jordan Peterson just sort of upped a whole bunch of people's agency. And when it comes to this meaning crisis and nihilism-induced depression, and let's say nihilism-induced lethargy, and nihilism-induced sloth, is it's because it's very hard to say and to really somehow oh gosh now we're is this now we're now 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 I'm going to sound like this is evangelical to believe in your heart that there is no agency <laughs> to believe in your heart that there is no such thing as as free will or real agency that in fact you're just winding following some pre-programmed script and but of course the people who argue that there is no agency or there is no free will will say yeah but you you believe that you're doing it but it still is pre your the emotions that you have and the drive that you have and whatever it is inside of you that you experience sort of this rallying this this screwing up your courage this getting ready to take on the battle all of that is equally illusory but then people of course will have many experiences where they say yeah but you know what 
There are mornings when I just roll over and turn off the alarm clock, and there are mornings, mornings that I get up and go to work. In fact, there are very few mornings that I turn off and turn off the alarm clock because then pretty soon I don't have a job to go to. So getting beyond the real experience of effort and will, most, you know, it, you can say hypothetically there is no agency, but if you actually live that way, it'll destroy you. Now, one of the interesting I don't one of the interesting little pieces in this video um, is <laughs> make nihilism great again. <laughs> I thought somebody's somebody's having some fun making these chapters. And so, of course, I listened to that. Well, let me get my sound straight. Um, I know sound, sound is, again, people, sound is remarkably difficult. Um, sound is far more difficult than you imagined videos to be. Make nihilism great again. To, I need to interject here. So you ring me probably th three years ago, four years ago, you ring me, and I'm in the gym. And you say something like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm in the gym. What are you doing? Uh, just whatever, whatever. Catch up a little bit. I was like, what's going on? So what's what's happening? And you said, I'm trying nihilism. And I said, what do you mean? And you went, as a life philosophy, I'm trying nihilism. And I still don't know what you mean. So how is your experiment to make nihilism great again going? Well, I was getting a bit fed up of people saying, oh, you're a nihilist. Oh, you're an atheist. Well, they wouldn't say it. Just a reminder, an emotion is not an argument. In the terms of nihilism, they say, oh, you're an atheist? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I, there, was a, there was a clip of Jordan Peterson on the Lex Friedman podcast, um, and he says, oh, you're secular? And you, and you go to art galleries, yeah? Well, what makes you think you're secular? And the head turn is real. He, he, he does that, you know. Yeah. And I thought to myself, what on earth are you talking about man you think you can't be an atheist and enjoy art now i've tried my best to understand what he was getting at and i think he was trying to basically say that in order to enjoy art you need to have some kind of value and in order to have any kind of surface level value you can always ask the why that why that question hmm. you know, why do you value this why you know that the, the, the classic sort of why do you why do you go to school to get a good grade? Well, you don't just want the grade. Why do you get the grade? You do it to get a good job and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. Happens with value. And so why do you go, why, why do you value art? Because you maybe you value beauty or something. And, and Peterson's whole thing is that whatever's at the top of this value hierarchy is in his definition divine. He, mm. he just defines it as such. And so he essentially said that like, you know, people claim that they, that they are nihilists, but they don't live like that. I thought, well, what would it mean to really live like a nihilist? And, you know, I, I guess I tried to emphasize but he's right in to the extent that I think most people don't. First of all, can you really try it on for size? <laughs> Again, this is the this is the this is the pointlessness of the free will argument. You can't can I can I decide that free will? Is, it's one of these things that it just just comes apart in your hands. Live like a nihilist. What but, would the definition of living like a nihilist be? I think it would just mean the rejection of 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 any such thing as a non-contingent reason for acting. Be more accessible. You you would need 
to 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 really think that there's no reason to do anything outside of essentially your crude preferences and biological drives right and uh, i think the reason why people think that nihilism is unlivable is because they have this image of somebody just immediately becoming a raskolnikov type figure and just committing a murder or something mm. but they forget that th these people still have their memory you know they're going to be embedded in in a in a culture and an upbringing that's it's really probably more just fat thor especially in this world of of affluence and ubiquitous entertainment and and remember how we got here with uh, young men failing to thrive and, and what seemed to energize them and have them perform better was someone giving them an idea that there is agency. Their, their preferences are essentially still going to be aligned. I mean, Penn Jillette was once asked, if you're an atheist, why don't you kill and assault every person you want to? And, and he says, I do. I do kill and assault everybody I want to, which is precisely nobody, hmm. you know, and very clever, I guess a bit of an applause, but I mean, the, the difficult question ethically is what happens when somebody doesn't have that view, what happens when somebody does just disagree with you, but hmm. I don't know, it, it was, yeah, so, it was so kind of boring. Just to interject that, to, so you could see um, the meaning-making machine of society and cultural norms as being useful to constrain the behavior of those outlier people, hmm. the ones who would go out and, and commit the litany of mass murders but yes. you know mum told me that i'm not supposed to squash bugs when i was five years old and this is now carried on through but yeah i think you know for most people we are the descendants of the people who avoided at least for the most part killing people that were close to us and we feel a lot of the time like we're now close to each other mm. yes yes um i think that's probably true uh, the, the issue is and a little bit later they're going to get into tom holland's thesis and if you think if you think that Tom Holland's thesis sort of gets washed out because there's a both sidesism to it, try evolutionary biology as a causal impact, and then try to figure out where morality comes from. You think, well, morality is an adaptive morality is an adapt an adaptation that grows in us in order to to gain survival so morality is about survival but again you can you can just play these games and these these arguments they just twist round and round and round and round and well you know our our ancestors our ancestors who were murderous um what they didn't reproduce um part part of it is that human beings are, are so incredibly social that so much of our power comes from being together than being apart. Is that the more that we try to explain away these these mechanisms, uh, we try to understand why in our evolutionary history we might have evolved certain moral taboos, mm. this kind of stuff. It begins to essentially take the complete ethical force out of it, and that's what people think leads to leads to nihilism. Once you have fully explained. And, and that's so interesting because it, it takes the eth ethical force out of it. And okay, well, what, what exactly are ethics? Are, are, are they a feeling? Um, are they a sense of dread? If, if you sort of think it through and say ethics are an, a, a, an evolutionary adaptation 
Um, so, <laughs> and, and the biggest, uh, the biggest thing that's hilarious to me is someone just recently clipped Jonathan Peugeot and rationality rules where Jonathan Peugeot just basically asks him, do you really think you're an ape? Um, <laughs> because there's a reason chimpanzees make terrible pets. None of us want an adult chimpanzee in our house because they will destroy us. And that that's who we know we've we've gone beyond well what what in fact is beyond this is of course is what Peugeot just keeps trying to help people see but usually in these conversations people look at them the way let's say a chimpanzee would look at a phone book a phone book boy that I sure dated myself a chimpanzee would look at any book why something would be considered immoral hmm. just on evolutionary grounds you've essentially taken out the the moral factor altogether, and you're just explaining it in terms of you know genetic preference. Yeah, there's no more meaning. There's nothing. There's no additional fluff or feeling of anything. But this is, you know, I've spent a lot of time over the last few years talking to evolutionary psychologists, evolutionary biologists, people that have looked at the evolution of culture as well from a mimetic standpoint too. Mm. And it does seem to me that culture is is just like exclusively an adaptive response to coordination at large scale mm -hmm. and that all of the things that are encoded in that are effective ways for your tribe to not blow itself up would you say the same thing about morality in general yes so then how do you escape this this nihilist conundrum that that you think all, all it is you know the reason why you're not killing people is mm -hmm. just because you sort of evolved that way doesn't that kind of take out some of the meaning so i think if you were permanently self-assessing why you do the things you do and the inputs that you feel, but what that doesn't account for is the fact that we are self-deceptive. Quite right, yeah. And the sense of being a human is one that is imbued with meaning. I often use this term about how um, you are not personally cursed as a, a, a reassurance. And it was something that was reassuring to me. If I was uh, spending a bit of time where I was feeling sad or down or whatever, uh, it would feel like whatever emotion I was going through, whatever unpleasant emotion I was going through was like a personal curse. And this makes sense when you look back at how the gods were personified as different sorts of emotions, right? That, you know, Cupid had an arrow that hit you or that, you know, you had gods of war, you had gods of wrath, you had gods of envy, you had gods of narcissism because it, the experience of a thing, of a thought, of an emotion, of a state, is not just the confused chemical signals of your body, and now I can just reverse engineer this, even the, inter the interaction of you and whatever's going on in the social group around you isn't just that. Hmm. It's imbued with meaning because you interpret things in this soup of experience which scales things up from just what's happening to, and it feels like there's something, it feels like there's some there there, Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't escape that illusion if it is an illusion. This is another thing that I spoke to to Ben about first name term, um, first name basis. It seems now, Mr. Shapiro. Um, Mr. Shapiro. I did. I did try that. And, you know, when, when I was emailing back and forth about setting up that event, I, I, was, I went to type out sort of like bring Mr. myself Shapiro. to do it, um, at least not behind his back. Anyway, he said, like, you know, I don't believe in free will. I don't know if you believe in free will. Perhaps we can talk about that. He, he's like, look, you don't, you, you don't believe in free will, but, but you, you act as if free will does exist all the time. And I remember thinking, what do you mean? 
what, what, is it, what does it look like to act as though free will doesn't exist? Mm. The very argument... I think it looks like Fat Thor. I think that's, I think that's, the, I think that's the image. I think that's the icon. Um, it's, to, it's to simply give in to... Fat Thor. Or one of the arguments against free will is that you are essentially driven by your biology, your, your genes, your, your will, you know, the, the Arthur Schopenhauer line that you can do what you will, you just can't will what you will. In fact, you have to do what you will. That's, that's, what, that's what drives behavior. If that's the case, then, then why do you have this vision in your head that if you lack a belief in free will, you're like not going to get out of bed in the morning? The very argument is that you will get out of bed in the morning because you desire to go and get some breakfast. Mm. That's like the whole point. And so any argument... Part of, what I, part of what I think when I hear something like this is the sample size because, well, I've known a number of homeless people who when you pass by their sleeping bag that someone so generously donated to them because they looked at these people sleeping outside and said, oh, they must be, they must be cold. Let me give them a sleeping bag. And the sleeping bag maybe lasts two or three days because not only don't they get out of the sleeping bag to eat breakfast, they don't even get out of the sleeping bag to urinate. And so it's... Generally speaking, when you look at, okay, so let's, let's talk about language games. When you look at, say, Christian language, you would say, well, something has to be put out by a stronger thing. That's something, go back to what Chris was saying, something has them captive. And, and something stronger needs to come and get them out. And one, one of the things, okay, so do you want to go the evolutionary animal route? One, one of the things that I'm... So I've had the I've had the puppy now since August, and uh, the puppy is now seven months old. And our my particular puppy now I've I've been in enough dog training classes with all the other little puppies um, that are learning to become service animals. And of course, there's nothing natural about these dogs helping people get up out of a chair or hear that there's an alarm or press an elevator button or any of these things is it's amazing how much will you can put into a dog and how much will you have to take out of the dog. Now, my particular puppy is uh, a very energetic dog. Some of the other dogs in the dog training class just sit there good as gold on their little mats, on their downstays. My dog, my dog has a real hard time sitting still. And so, you know, my wife and I were always adapting and we, we learned this. Okay, the dog struggles to sit down. So it's just little incremental things. But but will is something that we seem to be able to give to each other or take away from each other. And often this nihilism, this nihilism argument is, well, it takes it away. And, and I think this is part of when, when Tammy Peterson says, well, they did, the, the, they did the best they could and Jordan doesn't like it. You, you see the opponent processing going on within human community having this sort of move back and forth of that form where people say well you don't live like that's the case i always like to to, to think well what would it look like to you then you know if i could ask jordan peterson when he says oh, well you don't live like an atheist what would that look like to you and i don't know if he might say something like well you'd probably be this this morally depraved you know self-interested 
blah 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 like maybe but is that really what you think i mean i don't know but yeah i think it it, it... tom holland just posted on twitter a paper from the death of god to the rise of hitler because the rest of his history is doing a series on on hitler uh can weakened religiosity lead to the rise of totalitarianism the Nazi party set itself up as a political religion, emphasizing redemption, sacrifice, rituals, and communal spirit. This had a major impact on its success. Now, it's also important to know that the one, the youth of Germany were disproportionately in support of the Nazi party as opposed to the old, which is an interesting dichotomy given the fact that as a culture, America, especially in terms of the screens, is so predominantly focused on youth. When the Christian church only had shallow roots, the Nazis received higher electoral support and saw much more party entry. Shallow Christianity reflects the geography of medieval Christianization and the strength of pagan practices, which we use as a sort of exogenous uh, variation. We also find predictive power in the in the individual level. Within each municipality, the likelihood of joining the Nazi party was higher for those with less Christian first names. I mentioned this article a number of times. What really happens when Americans stop going to church? They hold on to their politics when they stop attending church. In other words, the politics of the church sort of has sway, but it tends to get more extreme when it gets untethered from well, from what? Now, part of the difficulty is that when you say, well, from church, and a lot of that depends on what people understand church to be. Many in the media always think about church as sort of these uh, propagandizing institutions where all the people in the pews are just sit there to be propagandized by their pastor. In fact, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the great concern about Christian nationalism is all about this uh, propagandizing. Well, it's all these pastors that are propagandizing the people. I would suspect that actually what's happening about the, the, the polarization that happens after people stop going to church is because they have less and less contact with real people and they have more and more influence by the screens and the media and the echo chamber media that you know, because in the attention economy, it's about the clicks. And so it gets more and more extreme. Things get more and more extreme. People get more and more polarized. Forgets the fact that you are a product of your time, regardless of your beliefs from that time. Yeah. Right. I, I understand the Judeo-Christian values that everything is based on. You know, it's like a common talking point from those yes. guys. But, okay, how am I supposed to extricate me from that completely shake the etch-a-sketch of mm. my value set and then take it from the beginning. And let's not forget, like a lot of those values have grown out of what would have been an adaptive response in any case. Yeah. So I, I, it, the, the illusion is there. The illusion is unshakable. And so it, it sort of is a bit senseless to me to us, particularly on the free will thing. Like, well, why don't you act like free will doesn't exist? What What do what you mean? mean? I, I, I literally, it's unintelligible to me. Did you listen to my Sapolsky episode yet? No, right. I don't think so. So his new book, Determined, mm. Signs oh, yes. of a Life Without yeah. Free Will. Um, every time that I talk about free will, mm. people get upset. Did, did you listen to that episode? What, what would make me listen or not listen? Why is that? That's the question for you. 
I think the reason in, people... insert joke about how it's not their fault. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like my least favorite genre of joke that's, yeah. that's done. Through in, no free in, will of my own. In, in philosophy, it, it's every single time. Every through time, no free yeah. will of without. Well, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. And it's something that the conversation about free will is such a turnoff for people that I actively push it further into episodes. I actively don't title episodes that have got that in it. Mm. I can uh, surreptitiously coax people into thinking about it, but the response is is very, it's a lot amount of, uh, high amount of dissatisfaction. People don't like to think about that. Now, it may be because it's dry. I'm open to that. That's true. Um, it may be because it threatens their sense of agency and sovereignty, which is something I've kind of built this channel off the back of. Like, you can enact change within your own life, internalize your locus of control, stop being such a... He's been tremendously successful in that industry, downstream of, get off the couch, don't urinate in your sleeping bag, get sober. Bitch, etc. cetera. Uh, and so maybe I'm a... Uh, like a, the, a victim of my own foundation in that regard that I've selected for a particular group of people. But it's happened a few times, a few different conversations about it, tangential. Um, one guy was a compatibility, like... So why didn't Alex O'Connor or Paul Vanderclay listen to Chris's uh, episode about Sapolsky and free will? Why haven't I bought the book? It seems like a bad strategy to build your career on there is no free will was i compatibilist uh you're shaking your head why are you shaking your head I just, that that it's just the most ludicrous compromise to me compatibilism, compatibilism. It, it, can i can i am i right in saying that compatibilism just kicks the can down the road and plays lexical overload with things i think more or less right a, a lot of the time you're just also dealing with essentially a redefinition of free will it's what um, i don't mean that i mean this thing yeah, yeah. Sam Harris has called it the uh, the the Atlantis fallacy. He he had an extended argument with Daniel Dennett, a compatibilist about free will, and Daniel Dennett would would talk about all uh, about how this exists and this exists and this and and Sam was like, yeah, that that's true, but you, you're just not talking about what people care about in free will. What you're doing is we're trying to ask if Atlantis exists. So what do people care about? They want to know that things can be better and they want to know they can participate in making them better. And if you tell them it's only going to get worse and there's nothing you can do, fat Thor and a urine soaked sleeping bag is just around the corner. Exists. And you're pointing to Venice and you're saying, look, here's a city. It's, you know, got a lot of water and, and it, it's, it's kind of old and, huh. and these are all true, but it, but it's, it's just not Atlantis. Yeah. And what most people are talking about when they try to bring free will back into the discussion is just not free will. It's as straightforward as it gets in my view. I mean, there are versions of freedom that, that can be sensibly uh, believed in. Uh, it kind of depends on what your conception of freedom means. But if you mean something like authorship over your actions, if you mean that we could have rewound the clock and I could have done something differently, that I could have worn a different shirt, yeah. I don't think that the answer is 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 yes uh, logically yes you know the possible world's discussion earlier. people want better and they want to avoid the bad and they probably want to avoid the bad even more than they want the better yeah there's a possible world where i'm in a different shirt yeah. but i guess like physically possibly metaphysically 
I couldn't have made a different choice. Well, regardless, it's not of, possible. regardless of what you believe or don't believe about free will, uh, the response, people's response to it is fascinating mm. to me. Absolutely fascinating. And <clears throat> maybe, yeah, maybe it is that degree of control, almost like the denial of death. Like, mm. I wonder, have they done experiments on when people are reminded that they do or do not have free will, that their behavior mm. adjusts. Not that I know of, but I would love to see that. Because if it is, I mean, maybe it is true, but I think if it is true... Studies is the new revelation. I, I can understand why it might be quite like fatalistic. I mean, it literally is quite fatalistic, really, mm. to, to say that there's no freedom. And I can understand why that might make someone sad, and that sadness might motivate their behaviors slightly differently. But I think that intrinsically if there are a way to control for people who are sort of happy or sad about it because you can believe in there's no free will and and be like thank goodness it's all out of my hands mm. if you can control for that and show that people do they are like less productive or, or they you know don't get out of bed as much then then i think that would be meaningful and it, and it might be i wish i could find that tim keller quote because i thought he said it so well because in many ways I can't find that old darn video. And I know just what it looks like. And I don't remember the guy I was talking to. And he kind of ran into it. There's a sermon out there, Does God Control Everything? January 7, 2007. He had this really cool series on, um, anyway. It's basically a compatibilist, much like they don't like to talk about. Because if you really believed, um, basically, if you really believed your agency determined the future, then... You'd be terrified of doing anything. The truth is, we don't really believe, we, we don't just act based on our beliefs. We struggle to act based on our convictions. And if that weren't the case, then preachers would be out of a job because a lot of what preachers try to do is help mold and shape people's beliefs and then motivate them, encourage them to live out their beliefs or live out their aspirations or live out their convictions. And in many respects, if you go back to, let's say, a conversation like this, now having talked about what we talked about here, just listen to this, because this is, and I know it's going to drive some of you crazy, because you say, well, well, Christians, Christians don't exert enough agency. Oh, and sometimes we're accused of exerting too much agency, or sometimes we're exerting agency for the wrong thing, or sometimes we're not exerting agency for the right thing. Well, that whole too much or not enough or the wrong or the right, why don't you just assume all of that is normal? And what's most normal is complaining about what other people do. So yeah, it was, it was a really nice day. And did we have a talk that day? No, we didn't have a talk that day. Good. So that was also good. How do you feel about coming back to Toronto soon? Um, that's good. I want to see this baby be born. So, yes, yeah, we're we're happy about it. Good. Yeah, I'm quite surprised that's what's happening, but I'm, uh, I'm good. I'm very thankful. You know, you you, you don't know what's going to happen if you leave it up to God, do you? Mm -hmm. It's always full of surprises. Yeah. <laughs> and just think about what she said right there. You don't know what's going to happen if you leave it all up to God. Well, what does that mean? Am I not leaving it up to God? And now pastorally, it's a very common move. You know, and there's cliches about it. You can go to a 
Christian bookstore and find a plaque that says, let go and let God. Well, well, why do pastors and people say those kinds of things? Because, well, they're trying to control everything. Well, 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 free will is an illusion. Well, why are you trying to control everything? Because I get this stuff just, it's, it's a dog chasing its tail. Yeah. But we know that everything happens for the best and it'll all work out in the end. Yeah. Which is sort of an adaptation of Romans 8.28, same passage Tim Keller was talking about. Yeah. I've been saying to Jordan, you know, George sometimes will say to me something and I say, well, you know, you, he did his best or, or she did her best. And he doesn't like to hear that. So the other day I was reading something and it said, even though you may have done something in the past that was that was questionable, you know, it, it's, its value was questionable. Can you have compassion for that, for that action? Mm -hmm. And so then I said, okay, I have a different way of saying this. I said, can you have compassion for something that was done in the past? And he said, yes. So I found a, a better way to say it. He doesn't like that you did your best. He doesn't think that that's accurate. And so I'm glad that he thought that having compassion for the person or yourself doing something in the past was uh, acceptable. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Anyway. You watch all this combat, free will, free, not free will. But as a pastor, and I listen to this little conversation, it's like, yeah, these are, these are, these are people. Can you have compassion on people trying to make their way through this world? I hope so. Leave a comment.